turn to Genesis chapter 13 today. We've been working through the book of Genesis, the first book written by Moses, the Holy Spirit inspiring him to do so. And as we mentioned last week, or we began really two weeks, I guess, ago, we, we moved toward this, um, this slower pace, this patriarchal narrative section where we're going to look at the cycles, the four cycles of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, um, and then Joseph in that. And these stories are true. We know they're historical, and yet they are written in good literature. They're written as stories, and they're meant to be told as stories, and that's, that's uh, therefore, there's crisis and conflict and there's ups and downs and all that sort of stuff because our lives are like that. And so it's very rele- uh, relevant to us. And last week, we read about uh, Abram and the first crises or the three crises that afflicted him after receiving the covenant, the promises of God. And it was the famine in the land. Will God give me this land? It doesn't have any fertility to it sometimes. And then the journey into Egypt and Pharaoh, powerful ruler, he'll kill me. And then Abram's own fear, being a great crisis to the fulfillment of God's promises. He, is, he acts in fear rather than faith and thus threatens from a human perspective to undo the promises of God. And we learned last week that but, but nothing, whether it's Famine or, or Pharaoh or the fear of Abraham himself can undo God's promises. What is interesting is that we have this week Abram coming out of Egypt in chapter 13. But literarily, this is actually one story. 12 and 13 is one story. Um, let me, we're going to get to that in just a moment. I'm going to show you that this is one story and why that matters. But before we jump into the text of Scripture today, uh, let's seek God's help in prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us as we now move to chapter 13 in Genesis and we look at this next sort of narrative about your patriarch, the man whom you chose and his wife, Sarah, to be the father of many, us included. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be open to the insights that your word has given us, that your spirit through Moses wants us to, to see and to hear and to to respond to, Lord. We'd be responsive both in our uh, practically as we leave this place to your word, more confidence in you and walking in your grace. And in Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. So I said, it's one story. Well, why does this matter? We'll get to that in a moment, but, but how do you know it's one story? Well, first of all, um, the literary structure, it's got covenant at both ends. At the beginning of chapter 12, it's where God gives the covenant to Abram and, and through Sarah as well. And this covenant, it, covenant has those three promises, right, of land, seed, and blessing. And then at chapter 13, at the very end, God reiterates that covenant. So you have the book ends of covenant. So covenant, covenant, kind of tell us in the Hebrew literature, this is one big story with this sort of book ends these inclusio of the covenant at the end. But then you notice some other parallelism. Remember in Hebrew, parallelism matters. It's, it's, it's weaving things together. And right away in chapter 12, verse 6, we see that Abram uh, camps at Shechem. And this is near, or near what's called the terebinth trees of Moreh. 
Terebinth are probably just oak trees, very significant, and we won't get into that today. But he camps in the, near the Terebinth trees of Moreh, near Shechem. You find out at the end, chapter 18 of, uh, verse 18 of chapter 13, that Abram comes and it says he camps at uh, Hebron, and it says near the Terebinth trees of Mamre, another area there. And so it's very clear literally he's near the Terebinth trees before he goes to Egypt, and then after Egypt, at the very end of all this, he's at the terebinth trees again, these oak trees. And there is a, there is a spiritual significance to that, the idea of the stability, the roots going down deep, the, the certainty, the surety here. But that's sort of there. But then you have another parallel thing that's really interesting. He first comes into the land of Canaan, and he goes to Shechem at the beginning, and then he moves down to a place called Bethel. House of God is what that means in the Hebrew. And Bethel will also become very important throughout the rest of Genesis and even through the rest of the Old Testament as the place where Abram first, God's chosen nation in Abraham, right? Abram's really important. Where he first builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord at Bethel. Ham coming out of Egypt through the Negev of the south, we read already today, he comes and where does he seek to go? Not to Shechem, but to go back to Bethel. And he goes there, and it says it again in our text in verse 4, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So you get that parallel there as well. You got his Bethel worship. So you've got the covenant, the covenant, the Bethel worship, the Bethel worship, and then you have this little crises, or actually three crises that take place, or three problems. The problem of Egypt. And he goes down into Egypt to escape the famine. And then we're going to have another problem today. This is part two of that story, the problem of conflict with Lot. And that actually functions, I mentioned there were three threats, three um, crises to the promise of God. That functions as a fourth threat. Will Abram remain faithful to continue to believe the promise after Egypt's failure? And coming out, he wants to start fresh. He comes to Bethel. But then as soon as he comes out, there's another conflict. I mean, you've never experienced that, right? We don't have a term like when it rains, it pours to describe this sort of concept. You get through one and then something else comes up. And that's what's going on here. And then this, so, so yes, he, he made it through the famine. We, we don't know if the famine's over yet, but he's back out of Egypt because he had to be forcibly expelled from Egypt. It's not like he chose to come back out. Pharaoh was a little upset at the whole lying thing, the plagues on his house. But he he navigated and God rescued him from Pharaoh. And God even rescued him from the own fear in his heart that made him do something very foolish and selfish. But now it's family conflict. It's fortune It's wealth, it's prosperity. And what often comes with wealth and prosperity? Family conflict. And that's what rises up now. So now the threats were outside there, the famine, Pharaoh, and then inside here. But now it's with his family. The last little threat is, will the family undo Abram? Adversity could not undo God's promises. We learned that. Abram learned that. He's confident in that. He heads back to Bethel. But will prosperity ruin the promise and Abram himself? Now, to answer this question about will prosperity ruin Abram, 
Affliction couldn't ruin him by God's grace and his mercy on him. But prosperity, will that ruin him? Moses arranges for us a trilogy of stories. Three stories. All centered around this relationship where this, the, the two guys, Abram and Lot. Lot is mentioned with three times, three stories in, in Genesis. We'll have chapter 13. Chapter 14 is story number two. And then story number three is actually not until uh, chapter 18 and 19. So there's a little bit of a gap in there. But this is the, as the scholars call it, the Abram-Lot trilogy. And one of the, there's three important things that are going on in this Abram-Lot trilogy. All three of the stories. One, it's fulfilling or completing God's call to Abram in chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12 when he called Abram and said, get out from your father's household? Now, I don't think it was wrong for Abram to take Lot by any stretch. It's God simply fulfilling that. God is removing Abram completely from his father's household here. Because Lot is his nephew. He's the, his brother Haran's son. A quick note to think about that, the father's household thing. And we talked about it before, the arrangement of the family and all of that. It is most likely that Lot is approximately the same age as Abram. Some think Lot's actually older than Abram, but I can't find any way to prove that in Scripture. But it does seem like, and most agree, that the whole idea why he calls him several times, we are brothers, we are brothers, we are brothers. He actually says that several occasions, rather than, you're my nephew, you're my nephew, you're, you're, you know, listen to me. It's their equals in peer relationship throughout the stories. And the other thing is that Haran, remember, Lot's father died way back in Ur. It's very likely that Haran was quite a bit older than Abram. And so Lot is more along the same age as Abram is. So we're not talking about, when you think of the story, don't think of like this wise, age-old man Abram and this youthful, impetuous little punk Lot. That's not the idea here. They're brothers. They're in connection to one another. In the story that we found before, Lot wasn't present in Egypt. But when we read today, we found out he was there all along. He wasn't mentioned in chapter 12, but it said that he came up with Abram out of Egypt. So he's been there all along. He's been enjoying the tents of Abram. He's been blessed as Abram's been blessed by God. And this will complete that cycle where now Abram and Sarah now are a functional unit apart from all of the rest of their father's household. The second thing that these, this trilogy of stories does is it provides really helpful context for the first audience. Now, who are the first audience? First audience are the Hebrews who've just come out of the Exodus, come out of Egypt, wandering around in the wilderness and not yet possessing Canaan, right? That's when the Pentateuch is written, who it's written for. We'll find out at the end of the trilogy that Lot's descendants, through a very gross and disturbing means, are, through his daughters, are the Ammonites and the Moabites, What you find out for the first audience is the Ammonites and the Moabites. God tells Israel, be merciful to them. They're not Canaanites. They're not in the land you're possessing. Go around them. Avoid them. But the Ammonites and the Moabites won't let Israel out of the exodus avoid them. They keep pestering them, attacking them from the rear, infiltrating them, bothering them all along. And finally, they get destroyed along with the Canaanites. Not entirely, but mainly destroyed by the Israel because they won't leave them alone. And this, these are Lot's, Lot's kids. 
These are Lot's descendants. So it adds context. You know, when you're a first, uh, you're a Jew and you're reading about the stories of Abram, you're like, oh, so Lot's the cause of those people that have been really bothering us and attacking us and burning our villages at night. In other words, you're supposed to see Lot as the foil to Abram in these stories. Just like the Ammonites and Moabites are the foil to the nation of Israel that comes from Abram. So that's another reason. But then also, these are, and it kind of blends into this, Abram and Lot are prototypes. Um, They teach us lessons. And they're meant, and the three stories, they're set against each other. Now, I need to say a quick word of clarification. That's not saying anything particularly. Moses, for example, and me either, is not saying anything particularly in these stories about Lot's personal relationship with God. But Moses never portrays Lot as a good guy. Okay, none of the stories have him doing anything good or redeemable. You have to get all the way to Peter for him to actually say that he was a righteous man. (laughs) So we're not talking about whether Lot was a believer or unbeliever. That's not the way Moses sets up the story. That's not the point. Peter will talk about that, and it's actually supposed to surprise us that he can be called a righteous man because of everything we read about him. But Moses presents him as a prototype and Abram as a prototype. What do you mean by a prototype? Well, somebody that sort of casts a shadow that others look like in this same range. So let me give you the example. Abram, in these three stories, is portrayed as wise and one who walks by faith. Lot, on the other hand, is constantly portrayed in these these three stories as the fool who walks by sight. Sound like Proverbs, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. Abram is trusting in the Lord with all his heart. Lot's leaning on his own understanding. And so it's the proverbial fool versus wise man is being portrayed in these trilogy of stories. Secondly, Abraham is portrayed in these stories as the principled man resting on the divine word. Lot is portrayed continually as the pragmatic man resting in human wisdom. What he thinks ought to happen. Like John Bunyan described a guy in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, the worldly wise man. That's who Lot is in these stories, the worldly wise man. The next story we'll read about next week, we see Abram is the courageous rescuer. But Lot is the cowardly compromiser. And then finally, in the last story, we just it's sort of mostly about Lot rather than Abram. And it shows Lot in the tragic defeat his end is just tragic and disgusting and it's meant to show you go from the fool to the tragedy that's the idea there but you see abram as the compassionate mediate compassionate mediator for lot even in the end so these are setting up sort of a contrast um what, what moses i think is doing here we're supposed to be thinking of abram and lot when we read these stories together and seeing how they contrast or how they are opposites they're antagonistic they're prototypes of the wise and the fool and we're supposed to take it that way and i think the first audience is supposed to take it that way as well so we're just going to look at the first of the three stories obviously abram's patience and grace toward lot but lot's disregard for the divine promise the one who walks by faith and the one who walks by sight the principled man versus the pragmatic man that's the description in this account So, the way the story is outlined here is it really is in three parts. 13, 1 through 7 gives us the situation and the dispute that comes up. 
uh, verse 8 through 13, the solution, and then the division from the dispute. And then finally, 14 through 18, the surety and the destiny that God guarantees to Abram. So let's just re-go through this story again. I'm not going to read it. We ought to read it. I want us to just think through it in more of a narrative storytelling way. So Lot's with Abraham in Egypt. We find that out in chapter 13. He's been all along with him down in Egypt. And now he comes back with Abram into Canaan. Well, they go up to the Negev. And we read in our story that, that that's the southern part of Canaan. That Abram has one destination, a target destination after Egypt. And the text is making it very clear, I got to get back to Bethel. You could put that proverbially, I've got to get back to the house of God. I've been in the house of Egypt. That was a mistake. (laughs) Get me back to the house of God. So he goes back to Bethel, to the house of God. When it says in the text, where the altar was first made, he goes back to his Bethel, to the beginning of the promise. This is not the point of the text, but it needs just briefly mentioned. Is that not a wonderful pattern, Christian, for when you have erred? Go back, turn back, go back to the house of God, go back to worship, go back to bowing before him, and that's exactly what Abram does. And so he goes back to Bethel, as well as between Bethel and Ai over there, um, and this is your, our location right there. He goes back there from Egypt, goes back to Bethel. And he worships, and it says it again, and he calls on the name of the Lord. There is penitence, there is regret, and there is worship in those words. He calls on it. Okay, Lord, Egypt is not for me. It's not for me. Bethel is for me. Now, this is the first time right after this that Lot appears, and Lot also was with him, it says. Okay, Lot's with him. Wherever Abram goes, Lot's with him. But immediately upon the return, we find out that God had made Abram, and by virtue of Lot being with him, Lot too, very wealthy. Becomes very wealthy, very prosperous. Now, of course, the, the, the question is, did, would someone think that, well, that was a mistake to go to Egypt, but worked to my advantage. I mean, that's how Abram could respond. I contend that that's actually how Lot responds. Now, my reason for that is a little bit, uh, there's some speculation, but there's this little part, later on, I'm going to give a spoiler alert here, um, where Lot longs to go to the area, the plains of Jordan, it says, because it looks like Egypt. So in other words, there was, Lot viewed his prosperity from Egypt as something to like keep the good times rolling. Abram says, I got to get the, the, doesn't say anything about his perspective of the wealth. It's simply got to get back to the house of God. And so you see right there, there's a different perspective on Egypt, I think, that comes through both of those individuals. So they go, they, they're in the land of Canaan in Bethel. You can see where it is. It's kind of in the middle of Israel. Well, the middle north and south orientation of Israel And it says this in verse 6, the land was not able to support them. Now that's strange because the land will support far more than them when the nation of Israel comes out. So how could the land not support them now? Well, Moses gives us a little indication in verse 7 because it says because, (coughs) excuse me, the Perizzite and the Canaanite are still in land. So it will be able to support them, but not yet. 
the Canaanite and the Perizzite are still overcoming. That's the people in the land. So, a conflict, a dispute arises. Now, it was between the herdsmen of Lot and Abram, fighting over wells, fighting over grassland, fight, that, that sort of stuff. But twice in the text, it mentions, Abram mentions, let there not be a dispute between you and me. And so it wasn't just Abram and Lot are sitting there going, I don't know what we do, but our guys can't get along. It is a dispute between Abram and Lot. There's conflict there. Now, it is not spoken in the text. There is an assumption, and I think it's a fair assumption, given on the whole scope of what's going on in this trilogy, that, that Lot is probably instrumental in the dispute. Either way, the idea there is that we got to do something about it. And that's the first section of the story. There is strife there. And the strife is because they have too much stuff. Now, we live in America, and we have a little bit of an idea of what that's like. Too much luxury produces often family strife and conflict. So Abram has a solution. He brings up the solution. The solution is separation. Abram seems to believe, and it says in verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. He seems to believe what the psalmist will say, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And what the scripture says in Proverbs, by pride um, comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. And there is well-advised wisdom in Abram here. And so he makes a suggestion. Let's separate. Now, this is not the point of the text either, but I do find it helpful to recognize that the solution to the dispute was separation, and that's okay. Sometimes it's best to go your separate ways, right? You see that here with Abram. Best we go our separate ways. But Abram's solution is amazing when you consider who he is who, how Lot has been blessed and connection to Abram. And Abram says, is not the whole land before you? You take what you want. That is massively magnanimous, isn't it? Massively generous. The whole land is yours. And then notice this text. He says, if you take the left, I will go to the right. If you take the right, I will go to the left. I learned something in my study this week that I did not know before. And that is that when Hebrew or Semitic peoples, even many in the East, when they speak of left and right, that's a description for north and south. Now that's because they orient themselves east like this. And now we start with north, south, east, west. They start with east, south, west, north when they describe their directions. So by him saying left and right, he's saying north or south. Now that's, that's really important. It may sound not that important, but it's really important when you understand the whole text. Because Abram's actually offering something that is his to offer. He means, if in Bethel he means north toward Shechem or south toward Hebron. That's what he's offering Lot. And he's offering to take as much as he wants. Like you can start here, go as far as you want to go. You can start there and go as far as you want to go. Take as much as you want, 
North or south? Now, two reasons. Like I said, it's because it's what he's promised. Uh, East is not part of Canaan from where they are. East is outside of where God had promised Abram. He's not going to offer him. Hey, why don't you get out there to those places that I don't... It's a great magnanimous offer when you offer your neighbor's house, right? Uh, That's not what's going on here. He's offering his own, what God has promised. It's also a tremendous act of faith because as of right now, it's like, you don't own anything really, Abram. Right? Like the Perizzites and the Amazites, they got it. But this is a tremendous act of faith. He's like, oh, it's going to be mine. So you divvy it up now before I divvy it up. Now, it also is important theologically because Abram is not offering to leave Canaan. Okay, he's not... if, if, If he meant east or west and the plains of Jordan is in the offer... Abram's not saying, I'll leave Canaan and go over to, uh, to Sodom if you want me to. He's not offering east and west. He's offering north and south because that's what he has. So there's no problem of Abram. Because that's the question I had when I read this. Is Abram actually saying he'd leave the promise? Like, I'll go wherever you want, Lot? No, he's saying north or south. In, within Canaan, you choose your part. But you know what's fascinating about Lot? Is he lifts up his eyes and he looks and he says, nah. I don't want north or south. I'll take east. I'll take the plains of Jordan. Now, why he'll take the plains of Jordan? Well, the description is very fascinating. The description is that they are like the, because he saw that they were like the garden of the Lord. That's clearly the garden of Eden. So they're very fertile ground. But then that second description that I think is telling in, Ab- in Lot's heart, like Egypt. He wants Egypt He probably never wanted to leave Egypt. And now this place is like Egypt. I want that. Now that is either, we don't know, we don't really know exactly where Sodom is located. Archaeologists, biblical archaeologists argue over the location of this. It's not even between secular and non-believing. It's either over here somewhere. Can't get my pen to write. It's either over there in that green area just north of the Dead Sea. Or it's in the green area south of the Dead Sea is where where Sodom and Gomorrah are. There's archaeologists that dug up places in both those areas and they have their like camps. We claim it's here. No, we claim it's here. And I don't know. Probably one of those places. Both fit east, right, of what he's talking about. I think the area north of the Dead Sea fits better the picture here of Abram like offering north, uh, north and south and Lot going straight across the Jordan River, the north part of the Dead Sea. Um, the important part is that he doesn't regard the promises of God. He's been there all along. In fact, the promises were given to Abram, but Lot, but remember part of the promise is that all families of the earth would be blessed through Abram, including Lot. Lot could have experienced the blessing in Canaan with Abram, But no, he wants east. Now that brings up something else in our theology that we've been looking at through Genesis. Remember where Adam and Eve, after they fall, were driven from the garden, it says, and they went eastward from the face of the Lord. And then do you remember Cain went eastward away from the Lord? And the men of Babel, they traveled eastward away from the Lord. And here Lot is going eastward away from the house of God, the place of God's presence. 
the journey eastward is a continual biblical expression of movement from God's presence, from God's protection, which we'll see in chapter 14, from God's provision. So, Lot disregards the promise, the protection, the presence of God because of the well-watered plains of Jordan. But hey, the choice makes sense. Very practical. And besides that, reminds me a little bit of Egypt. But there's an ominous note here by Moses. It was well-watered plains, then it says, before the destruction by the Lord of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sort of an ominous note Moses is giving here, like, but (laughs) there's a problem. So it tells us that Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. And so what we find here is the Abram's solution comes to pass, but not in the way that Abram had hoped. He'd wanted to divide it with his, his brother, his nephew, but now Lot removes himself completely from the protection and provision and the presence of the Lord. Because it just makes sense. It, I can make more money this way. I can get some more. I can retain all of my wealth and value. Now, the choice is a foolish one. I'm not saying that Lot fully understood all of his choice. Rarely does anyone fully understand all of the foolishnesses of their choice till afterwards. But I do think it's notable that even in that day, Moses says this. Not that the, he gave that ominous note, the Lord would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But he also adds this in verse 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Not that they would be, they are. Now that phrase, exceedingly sinful, that sounds familiar a little bit, doesn't it? That's the same language used by Moses for Genesis chapter 6, before the flood. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which will complete the Lot trilogy stories in chapter 19, is equated theologically, both in the New Testament and throughout church history, as the second greatest judgment of God in all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament. The greatest being, of course, the flood. In other words, why was Sodom the second greatest judgment of God? Because the wickedness is just like the earth before the flood in that place. Now, the reason this is in the text and why it matters is we have to understand the plain reading here is that both Abram and Lot knew the state of Sodom. I don't think... That Lot is like, you know what? I really want the wickedness of Sodom. You know those guys and what they're living down there? I really want that. No, he wanted the well-watered plains. 
He wanted it to be like Egypt. But he made a choice based upon what would give him security and prosperity without regard to what it would do to his integrity. And that's what made it a foolish choice. It's not foolish to choose well-watered plains. It's foolish to do so at the expense of integrity and righteousness. And that's what he does. We see it very spoken even in the, in the phrase, the very plain but sort of ominous phrase, and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He went to the well-watered plains and then towards Sodom. And then, of course, we read the rest of the stories. Before long, he's in Sodom, and then he's sitting at the gate of Sodom. He's going there. He's drawn there. Calvin said it very succinctly. Let the sons of God be admonished not to envy their fortune, the men of Sodom, but to wait a little while till God arousing them from their intoxication shall call them into dreadful judgment. Let the sons of God be admonished. Don't envy the wicked. There is judgment coming for them. Young people, don't envy Sodom. Fire will soon consume it. Alan Ross said this, Lot made his choice without any concern for Abram, a choice that would prove to be the greatest mistake of his life. Note the three verbs in the sequence for Lot. He lifted up his eyes. He saw. He chose for himself. Does that sound familiar to you at all? She saw the food, the fruit tree, that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, one that would make one wise. It makes sense. And she took for herself and gave to her husband. It's a pragmatic choice rather than the believing choice. The brother to Abram could have pitched his tent with Abram and benefited, but he pitched his tents towards Sodom, caring more for security, prosperity, than righteousness and spirituality. This is why I said he's the foil in the story to Abram. Because it says, on the other hand, Abram, however, dwelt in the land of Canaan. Promise. Lot disregarded promise for temporal security. Well, then we have the last section in the story, 14 through 18. Lot's gone. He's, in, he's out there towards Sodom, and now God turns the focus toward Abram. God now visits Abram. He renews the covenant, especially the land and descendants. And it's fascinating to me, as generous and as magnanimous as Abraham was to Lot, God was more to Abram. Abram stands there facing east, and he says, Lot, I'll share it with you. Go left or go right. Go north or south. You carve out the chunk of promise you want. I'll take the other one. But notice what God says to Abram. And, after, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. I'll give you all the directions, Abram. Not just two. God is far more generous than even the patriarch himself can be. 
all the land you see, not just a portion of it. I give to you and your descendants. And I think this is significant. Though Abram's quality of character is good in this story, God's character is better and shines even brighter than Abram's. Do you notice the difference in Abram's speech and Lot's speech? Ross again says this. Abram's speech gives Lot the choice land. God's speech gives Abram the whole land. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the land, but God told Abram to lift up his eyes and see the land. Abram was told to do it. Lot simply did it. Abram was waiting for God to give it. Lot simply took for himself. Better that God gives it than an individual takes it. Lot is busy securing his own future, but God is busy securing Abram's. And beloved, it is better to have the Almighty secure your future than you. There's a little chiastic poem in this. It expands on it. He says, I give it to you, the land I give to you, and your descendants forever. And in this little part of the center of the chiasm, he says, as the dust of the earth, it's the first half, then he moves back the other side of the chiasm, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, your descendants could be numbered, a wise rise and walk in the land, I give it to you. See that little chiastic poem? And remember, in the chiastic poems, the center is sort of like the important part. And that's where he says the dust of the earth. Now, this is the first time God has, the first time he'll use stars, he'll use sand, he'll use different things. But this is the first metaphor that God gives for Abram's promised descendants, the dust of the earth. Now, that's fascinating because Abram and Sarah, now with Lot gone, family-wise, they're alone. They have no descendants. They don't even have any nephews. But I'll give you a descendants like the dust of the earth. Now, two things are being said, I think, with this. Two, two purposes in this metaphor. One, it's obviously describing the innumerable nature of God's promised descendants to Abram. In other words, he says, look down at your feet, Abram. What are you walking on? Well, dirt. Pick up those little grains. That's how many you're going to have. Like the dust of the earth. Now, it, I, I believe that every time that God does this, uh, dust of the earth, stars in the sky, sand of the sea, he uses those sort of three to describe this innum- the innumerable nature of the descendants of Abram. I believe every time he's doing it, it is metaphor. He uses metaphoric language, like or as. In other words, it's not, not a specific number that, like, that you count the numbers and that's what you'll find is that specific number. That's not the idea. I mean, you, I, that could be the case. That's just not the point. By using a simile or metaphor, like or as, he's describing, when, from your perspective, when you look at it, you can't count the number of the dust of the earth. That's what it's going to be like for you. Now, now God can, but his point is not, not what he can do. His point is from Abram's perspective, but what Abram feels or perceives in the whole thing. It's going to be like that to you, Abram. My promises are so sure that you're going to have this land, that you're not just going to have this land but billions of people are going to enjoy this land coming from you. Now, clearly, this extends beyond the first part of the promise where he told Abram, I'll make a great nation out of you. This is not a great nation. This is something bigger than a great nation, right? The dust of the earth. 
I think what we see in the greatness of this extends beyond the concept of a nation and extends to what the book of Revelation describes when it says that there is an innumerable host worshiping God out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He's including the church. He's including you in this. Think about that for a moment. When God told Abram, count the dust, he had in his heart and mind you, the spiritual sons of Abram. Fantastic. But there's another sort of purpose, I think, in this metaphor, and that is that it's miraculous. Up until this point in Genesis, whenever we've seen the word dust of the earth used, it's been a primarily negative concept. It's part of the curse given after the fall. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Could there be, throw this out there for you to chew on this afternoon, could there be some spiritual shadow of resurrection in here the dust will live again god formed man from the dust and he will be and to dust we will go and then he will bring them for eternal because he says to your descendants forever the dust will live forever perhaps but i'll let you battle that out but the idea of the miraculous nature that this just isn't possible it extends past nations, and it's not humanly possible. But God says, I will do it. I will give it. What's Abram's response? Well, Lot goes out from the house of worship. Abram goes further in to the promised covenant. And so he journeys down southward toward Hebron to a place known as the Terebinth Trees of Mamre. But now he builds an altar there to the Lord. He builds another altar. This too is an act of faith. He went back to Bethel where the first altar is. But now Abram, after this covenant promise of God, says, you know what? I think I'll build another one south. It's my land after all. It's something God's promised me. I think I'll go down to Hebron and build an altar there. Deeper in to the Ammonite, to the Perizzite and the Canaanite territory. Deeper in, but safe and secure in the promise of God. That's his response. Worship. Trust. God will secure my future. So what do we learn? <laughs> what do we, how do we, what do we do with a text like this? I don't have time today to go into some of the details, but, but the reality is often there are three particular different ways to look at an Old Testament narrative. There's the theological perspective. There's the moral perspective or, you know, the lesson we learn from life, what we learn about God, what we learn about ourselves or what we should learn. And there's often a Christological foreshadowing, but not always. Last week, it was pretty obvious. This week, not so obvious. But I do want to point out just those three ways of applying an Old Testament narrative and just maybe briefly express to you how we might walk away from this text encouraged and challenged. First of all, theologically, I think it's very important that we understand that God's faithfulness is the root 
of Abram's faith. Genesis 12 precedes Genesis 13. God's full faithfulness on display in Egypt is the reason, the root for Abram responding with faith in Canaan. Not the other way around. We must not get this twisted. Our faith is not the reason or the root for God to be faithful to us. God's faithfulness is our reason for faith in him. To get that twisted is the dreaded curse of legalism. Prosperity preaching and all that sort of stuff. That you do, you be faithful, and then God will respond with faithfulness to you is not how it's presented in the text here. Abram responds in faith because God has proved himself faithful to Abram. I think that's theologically a very important point to take from this text. But also, there is a, this text has more moral lesson, ethical lessons than the previous one did. Probably because what Abram did in the previous in Egypt wasn't very moral. So there's just more here. We see Abram, I, I couldn't think of a best way to put this, but it just seems he's acting far more patriarchal here, right? I, I like this story. It's like, it's less like, oh, that Abram. It's like, oh, good. He did something good here. This is good. And it is imitable. The Apostle Paul says in Corinthians that some of these things are written so that we could imitate them. So we could learn from them. And I think we ought to learn a moral lesson from here. And that is that prosperity is a dangerous grace. Wealth leads to pressure, leads to conflict. How will Abram respond? The wise man respond? The fool? How will he respond to the prosperity? Note they both received the prosperity and they responded differently. It is a grace. It is a gift. Wealth is a gift. But it's a dangerous one. Jesus himself described that. He said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's a dangerous grace. But Abram walked by faith, and he succeeded, and the danger did not overthrow him. Lot, who walked by faith, Lot, who walked by sight, he fell to the dangers that prosperity brought. There is a warning there, and I love this sort of very succinct expression. Abram does not allow the prosperity to define him. He holds loosely to it. He's generous. He's magnanimous. You know why he could be so generous and magnanimous? Because he fully believed that it was God's gift to him, nothing he had gained or earned himself. And that allows you to just open up your hands. When you believe that you have to hold on to it because you earned it, you tighten up, right? But when we realize God has given it, what have I received that I have not been given? It's easy to be generous when you know that God secures your future. (laughs) You're not too worried about that future after all. It's in his hands. Lot grasps at what Egypt gave him. Abram is generous and magnanimous because he trusts the Lord. Prosperity is a spiritually dangerous grace. 
But then thirdly, there is a Christological element here that I think, not in the sense of a direct fulfillment, a narrow fulfillment, but in a broad expression or broad description. It's actually the most obvious part of the story. Several scholars said it's actually the main point of the story. I don't know for sure, but it's this. It's Abram's peacemaking uh, with the strife between brothers. Now, the peacemaking effort was achieved through separation, boundaries. Separation can be a wise solution. It was here. But notice how Abram's peacemaking, his reconciliation with, with Lot, it's marked by humility, generosity, faith. In fact, Alan Ross titled this entire section, What Faith Can Do in Conflict. When you believe in Christ, what it can do in your conflict. This peacemaking, this reconciliation is no small grace. Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's no small grace. And we learn here that people at peace with God seek to be at peace with others. The reconciled are natural reconcilers. And how does this foreshadow Christ? Paul the Apostle speaks of God as the God of peace. Isaiah speaks of Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace. Indeed, we can take from this text, kind of the song we've been singing throughout Genesis here, uh, Christ, the true and better Abram, the true and final peacemaker, the one who has brokered peace between you and the eternal judgment of God, the one who has taken the separation for you so you might be in promise, in the land, The sacrifice of Christ reconciles the sinners to God, making peace forever, thus breaking down the wall of division, ethically, culturally, socially. One people out of many tribes because of one peacemaker. And thus, because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, Paul says, if it's at all possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. It's no small grace. Oh, from, from, from the beginning to the end of Scripture, the concept of being a peacemaker and the Christ as our peacemaker is applauded throughout the Scripture. That's a good thing. And so I leave with just really two questions when we think about that final application. One is, are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God? You have a peacemaker better than Abram. And he can make you at peace with God. He's already done what is necessary. He's paid the price of your sin. He's rose in victoriously proving the price was paid. And he's making peace now. He's interceding. So rest in the peacemaker better than Abraham. And I would say to those at peace with God, are you at peace with your brothers and sisters here? You can be because you're at peace with God. There's much we could learn more, but we're out of time. Thank you for your patience today. God is faithful. Rest in Him.